Oh, Matthew chapter 5, what we've been looking at for the past few weeks is these amazing comparisons that Jesus is giving. Today we get to look at the last two comparisons that Jesus gives in this talk on the hill. And he's comparing all these different aspects of the law and what we've looked at so far that Jesus has really unpacked so brilliantly is he addressed anger and murder. And we talked about how Jesus kind of addressed those two issues. And he addressed um, lust. And he addressed divorce. And he talked about our oaths that we make, the promises and the kind of verbal dialogue that we have other, with other people. And in each one of these topics that Jesus addressed, he compared kind of the legalistic approach to this and the person that really kind of has the pharisaical mindset and how they approach all these issues. And then he compared that to the approach of a child of God that's been transformed by him um, and that's really operating in the way that the kingdom of God should operate. And this is the approach that Jesus is saying that we as his children that are part of his kingdom should have to all of these things, murder, anger, all of these issues. Um, And so, like, for instance, what Jesus would do time and time again, he he would say, you heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. You should actually look at it this way. You heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, even if you have an evil thought towards your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. And what Jesus is doing by comparing all of these different aspects of the law from a legalistic perspective to a loving heart's perspective is he's showing them two really important things. He's showing them that they're not as good as they think they are based just on their actions and behavior. There's a lot more going on inside. And he's revealing that to them. And he's also showing them something significantly important. And that is their understanding of the law has been off a little bit. And he's bringing them back to the real intent of what the law is for. And really what the law is for is just to get us into a heart posture of loving God and loving others. And that's what all those laws are for. It's not the behavior and the action that's so important. It's are we loving God the way we're supposed to love God as his people? And are we loving others the way we're supposed to love others as his people? That's what he's all about. That's what Jesus said when he was questioned by the experts. What's the most important commandment, they asked? And what did Jesus say? All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love God love your neighbor. That's, that's, that's the fulfillment of the law right there. Jesus came to restore those two relationships, the relationships with us and God and the relationships with each other. And so now we get into the next two comparisons, the last two comparisons that Jesus gives in the sermon. And it's no surprise they're about relationships, right? Because God came to restore relationships, all relationships, these relationships and these relationships. And so here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 38. I'll put it on the board, too, if you don't have Bibles. No judgment. I have. <laughs> you, have heard that, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile... Go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, 
and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So here's another one of those comparisons that Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now this is actually a law that Moses implemented. And when you think about it, it sounds kind of harsh. My first response to reading eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is pretty harsh. But actually Moses implemented this law as kind of an act of mercy for Israel, to be honest. Because it was a way, it wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth just so he can exhibit harsh punishment for the people of Israel. It was actually a way to keep them from over-punishing. It was a way to keep them from ending up on this endless cycle of one-upping each other through retaliations that would pretty much just break down the society. I mean, that's, in a sense, a lot of how human nature operates in our fallen nature. It doesn't take me long to kind of identify with this social dynamic when I just think about my childhood. (laughs) When I think about my upbringing with my two brothers, the three of us boys, and we lived in a single-parent home where my mom was always off to work because she had to figure out how to feed these three growing boys, and we were devouring everything in the house. And so, unfortunately, we were left way, way too often unsupervised especially during the summertime when she was at work every day and we're at home in this box, the three of us boys, with no supervision whatsoever. It was a constant battlefield, and it would always start with something small, right? It would always be something really, and it would always start in the morning, and it would last all day long. That was my life. (laughs) And, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, for instance, and my older brother would eat two bowls of cereal and all the milk would be gone. I'd be like, you ate all, you, you didn't need to eat two bulls, and I'd give him a push or something like that. Well, what would he do? I'm not going to be pushed by my little brother. He'd push me back harder, and then I'd push him back harder, and then he'd push, and then we get in this endless cycle of I need to get the better hand. Um, oftentimes, he would end up with a, big, with a better hand, but I never, I never stopped trying to get there. Um, because we, and then we would usually turn to, it, it didn't get physical right off the bat. That would happen later. Then it would get kind of verbal. And then we would start, you know, then the, then the kind of the insults would come and, and the contemptuous, contemptuous, you know, phrases that we, you're such a blah, 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 whatever we called each other back then. Oh, yeah, well, you're such a blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, well, you're blah, blah, blah times 10. Oh, yeah, you're, and then, and then it would get in the fistfights. And my, by the time my mom got home, she would always come into a war zone. I feel like I have to spend the rest of my life apologizing to that poor woman. But... All that's to say is what Moses is doing with this law, what this law was all about was actually quite merciful. It was to keep them as a society from getting on that endless cycle of besting each other. And it was to apply appropriate punishment within the society. But it was, again, I have to remind you guys, it wasn't just so that they could have appropriate punishment. It wasn't just so that They had some kind of structures to control their behaviors. Those are good aspects of the law. But this law, just like every other aspect of God's law that he gave, was to get them on a trajectory of living out their identity as the children of God, which was people who are known by their love and generosity and mercy and kindness. And he's trying to get them there. Remember when God chose Israel? He said, you are my chosen people. You're my representatives, my ambassadors, so to speak. They, I want the world to know who I am when they look at you. 
so that's what the law was to help them to do, live out their identity as the people of God. So then, so here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, okay, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm going to take you guys even farther because you're, you need to live out this identity. So what does Jesus say? I already, I already, we, I guess we can do it again. <laughs> he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a, oh, no, sorry. That's not what he said. He said, I'll tell you. The words confuse me. He said, turn the other cheek. What do you do when somebody slaps you? Turn the other cheek. This is, this is the heart posture of a child of God. They don't just do the bare minimum just so that they can obey the requirements. They actually care for the other person. They turn the other cheek. When somebody takes your cloak, give them your shirt also. When somebody asks you or forces you to go a mile with them, why would somebody force you to go a mile with them? Keep in mind that Israel at this time was under Roman government. They were under Roman rule. And it was actual law that any citizen within that empire, if any kind of Roman official or soldier asked them to go anywhere to any distance or help out anything, they were required to do that. And so what Jesus is saying, if somebody like a Roman official forces you to go a mile, go two. Go two miles. If somebody asks you to borrow something from them, well, give it. And so Jesus is just kind of unpacking for us a little bit of what the heart of a child of God looks like. Their response, their natural response is like this. They don't just obey the law. This is their natural response. Keep in mind, we can't treat these things like laws. We can't say, okay, I have to turn the other cheek. Okay, I have to, because then we're just doing the exact same thing that we did with the other laws. It's not the laws that are so important. If we treat these like laws, we'll, we'll mess ourselves up, honestly. For instance, let's say I'm a heart surgeon. I'm the furthest thing from a heart surgeon. I'm the most, I'm the least detail-oriented guy in the world. Nobody would want me doing heart surgery on that. But let's just, for, you know, analogy's sake, for illustration. I'm a heart surgeon, and I have a patient that is in need of immediate heart surgery. And so I'm on my way to the hospital, and an official comes up to me and says, you need to go a mile with me. So by law, actually, Jesus said, I need to go two miles with him. And so I don't want to obey the law. I want to be right in God's eyes. So I'm going to go two miles for this guy because he told me to because I'm going to be right in God's eyes. All the while, the patient on the table dies because I was obeying the law. Now, obviously, that is not a loving thing to do. Let my patient die just so that I could obey the law. That's ridiculous, right? But that's how they have treated the law, and oftentimes that's how we do too. That's how the Pharisees were doing it. They wouldn't lift a finger for anybody on the Sabbath day. Why? Because they wanted to be right in God's eyes. And so there were people that were needy. There were people that were hurting. There were people that were needing healing. There were all sorts of needs all around them that they would turn their nose at and ignore so that they could be spiritual. Wrong use of the law, right? So we can't treat these like laws. It's not so much the behavior and the actions that we need to focus on. It's the heart behind them. Are we loving God and loving others? It's not these illustrations that Jesus gives that we need to focus on the important question that we have to ask is, are we the type of people that these illustrations speak of? Are we the type of people that would turn the other cheek? Are we the type of people 
that the natural outflow that comes from us would be, yeah, I'll go another mile with you because it's important to you. Are we those type of people? That's what Jesus is addressing here. That's what Jesus talks about. So he gave us these four examples. I just want to do my own little quick comparison. I made a chart so that we can do just a really simple, because this is, this is the character that Jesus is pointing at with these illustrations. This is the character of a child of God. Someone who turns the other cheek, why would they turn the other cheek? Because they're okay being vulnerable. For us, as people that carry God-likeness in our makeup, we should be okay with being vulnerable if it's for the sake of the relationship. We should be okay to, if, if, if we're going to get hit again, if we're going to get hurt again. That shouldn't be something that we should be afraid of if it's going to help the relationship. Now, I'm not saying we're going to put ourselves in a perpetual state of abuse all the time. Obviously, this is within reason. If it's going to do good for reconciling that relationship, whether it's going to reconcile them to God or reconcile them to us because there's some kind of issue there, we have to be okay getting hurt once in a while. I think the best place I've ever seen this character being vulnerable allowing ourselves to be hurt, which again is very much the character of Jesus, who discomforted himself constantly for the comfort of others. That is so godly. I think this character was exhibited for me more than ever before when I used to run the foster care camps. I used to run camps for abused and neglected foster care kids. Um, Kids that had unthinkable upbringings. Um, They were from ages 7 to 11. And so every summer, I would take a group of adult counselors, and I would interview every single one of them. And the one thing that I would look for, above all, is not so much their experience in social work or foster care. I would interview them just to make sure that they had hearts of compassion and this kind of character, because they were going to be hurt. They're going to put themselves in a place of vulnerability, because these foster kids They hurt you a lot because it's their only defense mechanism. And so these kids that have come from all sorts of different types of abuse, when they get on the bus or off the bus and all these counselors are like, oh, I'm so glad you're in my cabin. I can't wait to play with you. And they're like, I hate you. I don't. And they would do the most hurtful things. They'd spit on you. They'd run off into the woods. They'd say, I hate. And they would say, and I'm being, you know, quite tame and saying, they'll say, I hate you. They said a lot worse things than that. And they would constantly hurt the counselors. But if you understand how, you know, their kind of, um, I guess, psychology works is they're not going to let you in because all that's going to do is put them in another vulnerable place to be hurt again because they've been hurt by so many grown-ups before. They're not going to let anybody in. But what we found was that if you're willing to take the abuse oftentimes those kids were testing you. Oftentimes they're saying, yeah, you really care for me? If you really care for me, will you still care for me when I spit on you? When I call you this? When I call you this? When I call you this? And the counselors that were so full of love and patience and compassion and didn't care about being in those vulnerable situations and getting hurt, they usually won those sweet little kids over. And by the end of the week, the kids would come out of those shells. And it was mind-blowing to see some of those relationships there was restoration happening those relationships were being developed and some of those relationships continue on today and the most amazing thing is is several of those kids from the foster care camps got adopted by their counselors 
out of the foster care system as their own sons and daughters. Why? Because they're able to be vulnerable, to be hurt a little bit, to discomfort ourselves for the comfort of others, to turn the other cheek for the sake of that relationship. That's what a child of God looks like. That's a child of God that screams this is who God is just by the way they live their life. That's the stuff that, that's the character that Jesus is pointing us to by these illustrations. They're not laws. They're illustrations. They're examples to point us to a character that he can give all of us. That's what I love. We don't have it ourselves. They give up their shirt. Somebody takes your cloak, give them your shirt also. And if you can, if you can remember, Jesus gives us in the t- context of somebody taking you to court, taking your cloak, and what do you do? I mean, it may be unjust. They may have unfairly taken advantage of you and taken your cloak, and what are you to do? Give them your shirt also. Who cares that they took advantage of me? What does this mean to me? I think this speaks of caring for the needs of others. Caring for the needs of others, not because they deserve it, but just because it's a need. Just caring for their needs because it is a need. That's Jesus right there. I mean, think, think, think about that. Why did he come and didn't, like a Philippians chapter 2 says, he didn't think it something to be grasped onto to be equal with God. He had, he had the life. He had it made with the Father and the Spirit, um, and nothing was wrong, but he didn't think that position was something to be grabbed grasped onto or held onto because he saw our need and he came in the form of the servant and the likeness of man and humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was before him. He endured the cross, Hebrews 12 says, despising the shame. We were the joy set before him. But we're all these, did we deserve it? Absolutely not. Was it fair? Was, was it fair? Was it fair for Jesus to go to the cross? Absolutely not. Was he taken advantage of? Absolutely. <laughs> but you know what? He did it because of our needs. And so if we, can, if we can reflect that kind of a character, we can point people to the God who he really is. That's pretty awesome. That's, that speaks gospel. That's exciting. Go an extra mile. And I love this one. Go, Jesus says, if the official asks you to go a mile, go an extra mile. Not because it's a law, like I said before, you don't want that heart, pa- that heart patient to die because you're obeying the law. You go an extra mile because what is important to him is actually important to you only because it's important to him. Who cares about the work that he's doing? Who cares what he has a mile or two miles down the road? Who cares what he needs to carry? It's not important to me, but you know what? If it's important to you, then I'm going to make it important to me. This is the kind of selflessness that I want to exhibit as a child of God. This is the kind of selflessness that I'm actually learning as a parent right now, but really I'm a long ways away from. Because my kids, I've got four kids, and they all, when they grow older, they develop different interests. And you know what? Not all those interests interest me. (laughs) I'm not excited about most of them. I just want them to go fishing with me. (laughs) But you know what? That would be a very selfish, and they do go fishing with me, and they do enjoy it, but I have to, I have to 
analyze how much I'm taking them fishing and how much I'm actually meeting them where they're at. Because just taking them fishing is a good way to spend time with them, but it can be a selfish way to spend time with them. And if I'm not willing to meet them where they're at and make their interests my interests, I can do damage to that relationship. And God's all about restoring relationships and developing relationships that speak about who he is, not damaging relationships because of our self-interests. It's huge. And then he says they ask. Somebody wants to borrow something from you, they ask to borrow something from you, give it to them. I think that just, more, I think that just points to generosity. I really do. And I've actually, I've been convicted by all of these, but I've been convicted by this one too, simply because oftentimes when people ask me of anything, I always have to evaluate, do they deserve it? Or what is their motive behind asking me for this? And I care so much about their motive, and I think so much about their motive behind asking, and I think so little about my motive by not wanting to give. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why am I really not wanting to give? I don't ever think about that. I just think about, why are they asking for this? Why are they asking for this? And I don't ever consider, how come I don't want to give it? Especially with, like, not especially. I mean, this is all over the place, but I've been thinking a lot about panhandlers lately. It's summertime in Portland. Panhandlers are everywhere. It's the season. It's the panhandler hatch. (laughs) But... The typical response that I was always taught is don't give them money because they're going to buy booze. Don't give them money because they're going to buy drugs. And we are so quick to judge their motives, but we're not very quick to judge our motives for not giving it. Do I really not want to give it because I actually care about them and I really don't want them to buy booze? Or is it just because I don't want to stop and look awkward? Or I really don't want to give up any money? Or I am too worried about what other people will think about me? If I, or I don't want to engage in an awkward conversation? What are the real reasons for me not wanting to give? I have to keep, how does a child of God, Jesus is pointing us to this. What would, I don't think Jesus would have been afraid of those awkward conversations. In fact, I think he loved them. I think Jesus did a lot of miracles through those awkward conversations with those awkward people. That's the character that a transformed heart exhibits. That's what Jesus can give us. Then he goes even further. He takes us even further. Look what he says next. Here, first he's talking about how we respond to hurt and all of these types of relationships with people that we just kind of, um, whether by will or not, just do life with. But now he talks about our enemies. And now how do we approach our enemies, those that really wouldn't care if we were dead or might even celebrate if we were dead? What do we do about them? Here's what he says. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the devil, or on the evil, (laughs) and the devil, and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So now Jesus brings it to enemies. And I don't think, I think any one of us, as we go through life, none of us are exempt from making enemies in one form or another. You may not think that you've made enemies, but you might have some enemies and not even know it. 
just being an American makes us an enemy in a lot of people's camps, right? Being a Christian makes us an enemy in a lot of people's camps. We all will have enemies that wouldn't care or even would wish that we were dead. And how do we respond to those enemies? Jesus says, love them. He says, love them. Regardless of how much they hate you, love them. And the reason why is, he says, because because in loving them, you will be able to, I guess, be recognized as the children of God amongst all the people of the world. Like, it wouldn't, if, if you only do good to those that do good to you, and then you don't do good to those that hate you, you're no different than anybody else. And then how are you going to be really an ambassador or a representation of who I am? How are they going to know me because they look at you? You're no different than everybody else, even the tax collectors. He uses the, like, the most self-centered people as an example of that day, the tax collectors who were all about themselves. Even they, the tax collectors, they do good to people that do good to them. You guys can be different. In other words, you guys can look like me. Love those that hate you. Love your enemies. Because I think this, I think this is the ultimate form of love. I think this is the pinnacle form of love. As we've talked about, all of these comparisons that Jesus gave are all about relationships. But when we love to the point where we're actually loving those who hate us and wish we were dead, when we can get to that point of love, what does Jesus say? He says, you will be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. That's quite a statement. Now, don't think that he's talking about absolute perfection here. I don't think Jesus is talking about absolute perfection. When does absolute perfection happen? 1 John chapter 3 says, we will be perfect, 1 John 3, when we see him, then we will become like him because we'll see him as he is. Anybody who has this hope in themselves purifies himself just as he is pure. We will be made perfect on that day that we get to see Jesus face to face and we will become like him because we will finally be glorified. But until then, we won't reach absolute perfection. But in our relationships with others, I believe that we can approach them perfectly like God does if we get to that pinnacle point where we're actually able to love our enemies the way that he does. And you know what that will do? That will blow people away. I really think so. If we have that kind of love, if we can approach relationships to that kind of depth, it'll blow people away. When I was kind of studying for this these last couple of days, a story came to my mind, and it was something that happened this last spring when I went to South Africa. And I actually saw somebody exhibit genuine love towards their enemies, which blew them away. It was incredible. I was there, so uh, we, were, you know, we have a nonprofit, and we were there doing some training for our nonprofit, and we had met a guy who was a third generation, third or fourth generation farmer in Zimbabwe. Jason and Brenda were there. Raise your hand, Jason and Brenda. They are part of our nonprofit and good friends of ours and very cool people. Um, and we were in South Africa together. And so this guy, um, we were learning, you know, some new kind of aquaponics farm development from him. And he had uh, relocated in South Africa. And the reason why is because he grew up 
as a third-generation farmer in Zimbabwe, native Zimbabwean, but when the new president of Zimbabwe took power, he did it pretty corrupt, you know, cor- you know, corruptingly. Um, he promised all of the Zimbabwean war vets that if they were able to coerce people, usually by threat, into voting him into power, he would give them all farmland. And so... He got coerced. They coerced everybody to vote for him into power. He became the president. He had to make good on his promise. So what did he do? He said, all you war vets, any, any farmland that any white farmer has is all yours. Go take it and use whatever need, means is necessary. And so these war vets would go ripping these you know, families out of, their, out of their farms that they've had for generations. And so my friend Martin in South Africa, he was one of those farmers. He was sitting at a breakfast table with his family one morning, and a bunch of Zimbabwean war vets came into his house and said, you have till sundown with gunpoint, threat of death, everything. He's got his three kids at the table. You have till the end of the day to get out of this farm. It's ours or we'll kill you and your family. Okay, this is how they did it. And so they had to pack their bags. It's a horribly tragic story. They ended up hanging one of his staff members in town as an example of what they would do if other people don't get off their farmland. And it's, I mean, it's just so evil. And so they left. They got off their farmland and got reestablished in South Africa and just was trying to find any kind of angle to get their home and their farm back, which they couldn't. But then some local government officials thought, you know what? What he did was murder. What he did was way over the line, even to Zimbabwean governmental standards. We can probably accuse him. We could probably have him persecuted. You need to sue him. You need to take him to court. And so he was kind of going through the process of taking this horrible war vet and his team that were living on his land and trashing the place. No, the, the horrible part of the story is none of them know how to farm. And so now Zimbabwe has like a 95% unemployment rate and the town, the whole country is just going down the tubes because all these farms are just going to, you know, trash. <laughs> so um, he got just a word from the Spirit not to sue him, but to love him and just to start over, to forgive him. It's like, Lord, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he just felt like the Spirit saying, you need to forgive him. And he had the choice to make. Should he just go on this endless cycle of one-upping each other, take him to court, and who knows what happened after that? Or should he just choose to forgive? And so he went and told his wife, and he said, I think the Lord wants us to forgive him. But then it got crazier. He said, and I think I'm supposed to tell him. He really felt like he was, and so he told his friends. He said, I need to go back to my property, but here's the thing. The war vet said, if you ever come back to this property, we will beat you. Okay, but I feel the Spirit telling me that I have to go. And so all of his friends are like, you're an idiot. You cannot go. They tried to talk him out of it. They couldn't talk him about it. When Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks. So they all stationed up on the hills just to kind of be there if needed, and he drove to his property, and the war vets came out, and they came out hot. They said, and so this one particular leader, he said, I told you never to come back here, and if you ever come back here, and he grabbed a stick to beat him with. And he ran up and charged him. And Martin, Martin's a pretty big guy, but when you have like 10 war vets charging with sticks, there's not much you can do. And Martin said, wait, I, 
The farm is yours. I just want to tell you one thing. I forgive you. What? What? The guy freaked out. Like he literally, he had, there's no place in his mind for this. He didn't have a box for this. You can't. And he just, and he ran up and stood out in his face. And Martin said, and he said, he, the war vet said, you can't. What do you mean you love me? You can't love me. You can't forgive me. And Martin said, hold on, time out. I don't think I can love you yet, but I forgive you. That's literally what he said. <laughs> and he paused and he just waited and he didn't know what to do. And so he just walked away. Get out of here. And Martin got in his car and drove off and just felt this weight, just gone. Look, turned around, and the guy was literally on his hands and like on his hands and knees, just like with his head between his knees, just beside himself, emotional, not even knowing how to compute that. I love that. One of the reasons why I think we should try to achieve through the Spirit and intimacy with God the kind of love that He possesses is because love is the most powerful tool that we have. I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. Why wouldn't we use the most powerful thing on our enemies? Love is the most... Hatred's not the most powerful thing. Anger is not the... All of those things are based out of fear. But perfect love casts out fear. We can overcome evil with our good. They thought Jesus was going to come and turn the political world on its head. They thought Jesus was going to come in all sorts of valiant might and power. But Jesus actually gained victory by losing. (laughs) More importantly, by loving. That's the kind of people we need to be. So the question that I ask is how? How do we? And I've kind of been threading it throughout this whole time I've been talking. How it's just within, it doesn't come by us naturally. God is love. He's the only one that can give us the love that we need. We can counterfeit love really well. We're pretty good. I mean, we can love to a certain level, but the kind of love that does stuff like that, the kind of love that makes people fall on their face and surrender before God, is the kind of love that only God possesses. The kind of love that forces us or compels us, is a better word to say, to love people when they are so unlovable and so hurtful is only the kind of love that God gives us. And that's the love that transforms lives. And we get it, we get it through intimacy with Jesus. The story that I have ringing through my head is when Stephen, one of the early um, deacons in the church, was in the temple preaching about Jesus and they were so mad at him because they could not refute anything that he was saying. And so they, he was speaking blasphemous things to the Pharisees, right? And so they threw him outside into the courts to stone him to death. And who was in charge of that stoning? Who was the um, leading Pharisee that gave authority to Stephen being stoned? Paul. He was Saul at the time. One of the leading Pharisees of the day. And they're sitting there watching Steve get stoned, and something amazing happens. Stephen did something remarkable. He says he looks up and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Somehow, he had this interaction with Jesus that was nothing that we probably ever experienced. It was so real, so tangible, so face-to-face. And it says that his face began to glow like an angel. And what happened when Stephen saw the face of Jesus? He said, he said, 
don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them for what they're doing. Does that ring a bell? I mean, come on. What did Jesus say when his enemies were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What of an exact representation of the character of God? When did he have that? He had that when he was seeing Jesus. I think intimacy with Jesus is the key. When we're intimate with Jesus, when the stuff of the world gets out of the way in between us and him, we can exhibit his character like no other. And I wonder if that's what it took for Paul to be converted. I wonder if those were the seeds that planted. I wonder if that was the impression of God that he got that haunted him until Jesus finally knocked him off his donkey and said, Paul, you're going to follow me. It's amazing. Love is the most powerful tool. And we get it by spending time with Jesus, and it's as simple as that. Let's pray.